0: One thing we always consider when we go to the word together is context. Context is so important. And we have been going through this book, and you may remember in the last chapter, chapter 12, the focus was on Jesus' return. And he was speaking to the audience that they would be ready and waiting and expecting him when he would, when he would come. And certainly the the Jews, that generation, although there were a remnant that believed, that generation were not ready. And though the signs were clear and he had his ministry, they were not ready and they did not accept him. The end of chapter 12 ends with this. He says, Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and the earth, but how is it you do not discern the time? They were hypocrites because they knew the signs and yet... Despite those signs, they rejected him as the Messiah. And then he uses the illustration of one who would be going to the judge. And it would be important and valuable for him that he would sort out his accounts, settle his accounts before he would come to the judge. And that would apply to Israel, to any of those Jews at that time, or any Christian today, that we would be ready for when he returns already, for when we face the grave. Now, as we go to our text this morning, notice in verse 1, there were at that time, so notice, this is a flow. We have a chapter break, but this is flowing right from the same context where he's speaking about judgment, standing before the Lord, the return of the Lord being ready. So at that present time, There were some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, right? So there's some in the crowd thinking, okay, talking about judgment. Well, how does that apply to this situation? There were some Galileans. They came down to Jerusalem. They were offering sacrifices. And as they did that, by the brutal hand of Pilate, they were slaughtered. How does that apply here? This question was important because the Jews often associated suffering or someone dying in a tragedy as evidence of the fact that they had sin in their life. And what happened to them was judgment. You may remember this was the view of Job's friends when he was going through his trial that his so-called friends came and said, well, Job, obviously God is not, not allowing this to happen to a righteous man. It's because you've got secret sin in your life, and we know it. And God, of course, corrected them for that. Or in John 9, remember, with the blind man, the disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus clearly said to them, it's got nothing to do with that. And he does the same here in verse 2. He says, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than any other Galileans because they suffered these things? And notice, he doesn't say, Do you think that they were less righteous? But he says, Do you think that they were worse sinners? All are sinners. But he says, Do you think that they suffered this because they were worse sinners? And Jesus uses this tragedy of these men being slaughtered to teach an important principle. People may have been living in self-righteousness while they were judged, but I seem to be doing okay. And he, as he so often would do, would turn it and point it right to the audience, right to the person. Many concluded uh, judgment and Jesus corrects them. And it's the same today. Have you ever heard anyone talk about karma? or he had that coming to him, or this is some kind of divine retribution because of how he's lived. And this is a good passage for that uh, principle. Verse 3, he says, I tell you, no. And in the Greek, no is at the beginning of the sentence for a strong emphasis. This is not the case. They did not suffer this because they were sinners. This is not some kind of retribution from God. Now, sometimes God does act. And sometimes he uh, may bring judgment upon a nation even. We see that in the Old Testament, and we also see it in prophecy to come. He may work in the life of a believer to bring about maturity and fruit, Um, He may even do a pre-salvation work in an unbeliever's life to bring them to faith. But that was not this situation. Sometimes suffering is just a byproduct of living in this world. Tragic things happen to good people and to bad people, although all are sinners. But relatively speaking, you know what I mean. In the same way as bad things may happen, uh, good things may happen to bad people also. Remember, Jesus says it rains on the just and the unjust. And when we hear that, we think, oh, rain, that's a bad thing. But in Israel, rain was a good thing. And it rains on the just and even rains on the unjust. Man often blames God for things that happen in his life. They're not so quick to thank him for the good things that happen in their life, but sometimes quick to Blame him for the bad things that happen. And Alison and I were having a devotion the other day, and she said, there's a verse in Proverbs that says that man, how does it go? Man ruins his own life and blames God. I said, what? And we searched it out, and sure enough, Proverbs 19.3, man messes up his own life and then blames God, has rage against God. Interesting. But the point being is we do not conclude that bad things that happen in people's lives are punishment or even chastisement for a believer. We are not, we are not, we, we do not judge that. If there is a fire or an accident or sickness or death, we do not say, oh, God did this, or why, God, did you do this? But why is there suffering in the world is a good question. It often surfaces on the lips of unbelievers and believers alike, and we don't pretend to have all of the answers, but it's clear that now we are living in a fallen world. Man rebelled against God, and we live in a fallen world, and we face the consequences of that. Immoral and moral people alike, believers and unbelievers alike, a subject to the natural laws of this planet and the earthquakes, etc., the evil hearts of men and even the demonic powers in this world system. We are all subject to them. There is an evil in this world that exists that is apart from God. Tragedy is the result of a fallen world that is polluted by sin. Jesus did not come to judge or to destroy. Let me read for you in Luke 9.54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? And he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So let's go back to our text. He says, do you think this happened because they are worse sinners? He says, no, but notice what he says. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It sounds like a contradiction, and that's why we're here today to understand such scriptures. He also uses another story to drive home the same point. In the next verse, he brings what was probably a recent local tragedy in Jerusalem in the region of Siloam. And he says, "Or those 18 whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? And again in verse 5 he says, I tell you, no, nothing to do with their sin. But then he says, again, he turns to the audience and he says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And often we have that question and we ask about those people and what about the people in Africa and what about, and often God will say, what about you? I'll worry about them. I love them. I died for them. But what about you? That you are accountable for the light that you have. Now, what does he mean, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish? Again, we have to rely on the context. That generation of Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And there were prophecies that Jerusalem would actually be destroyed as a result of that. It was fulfilled in A.D. 70 when actually you can read different estimates, but somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000, maybe more, people died when Titus of Rome laid siege on Jerusalem for four months, and it was an unbelievable slaughter. And that was prophesied. Let me read it to you. Luke 13:34. Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed... This is when he was weeping, by the way, over Jerusalem... You who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers the chicks under her wings, but you would not. And look, your house is now left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, looking to his second coming, his return. But he said to them, listen, I came to you as the Messiah, you did not receive me, and now you will bear the consequences of that. Your temple will be left desolate. And he goes on in verse 19, and by the way, what I just read is at the end of the chapter that we're studying now. But in chapter 19, in verse 41, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because, listen, not because you're worse sinners than the Gentiles, but because you recognize, you did not recognize the time of God coming to you. And remember when Pilate washed his hands in front of the crowd that were crying out, crucify him, and he, he washed his hands And he said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. It's over to you. And all the people answered and said, his blood be upon us and our children. Or in other words, the next generation. And that's what happened in 70 AD. About 40 years later, judgment came. So he's warning them, that generation, listen, unless you repent, the same will happen to you. And many did face that event. But when Jesus speaks about the need for repentance, he's addressing a much greater tragedy than what happened to those Galileans in Jerusalem or what happened to those Jews when the the tower fell on them. And that's what we'd like to speak about for a moment now. If someone would die without faith, without repentance, without looking to Jesus as their Savior, then in that sense, when they perish, they face spiritual death, separation from God. Oh, such a need to hear and to humble and to come to Jesus as our Savior. It doesn't matter if you think that you are good or bad or the worst sinner. You have a need for a savior, for all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and all fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned, and 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. The words perish and repent are found in another verse. Let me read it to you in 2 Peter 3.9. I think I have it here. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And to repent means to change my mind, to turn, to change my mind about sin, to change my mind about my need for salvation, to change my mind about who Jesus is and turn to him. And this is where we lean into the good news, for in John 3:14. It says, Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish. There it is. Wow. What incredible words that we have the privilege of saying and hearing and believing this morning. That whoever believes shall not perish. Whoever turns in their heart and looks to the Savior in faith shall not perish. What incredible news that is. And when he makes reference to the serpent in the wilderness, he's looking back to Numbers chapter 21. Oh, I do have it. Yes, so Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was. If the serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, what astounds me about this is Jesus takes this story and he likens the Israelites looking to the brass serpent as faith in him. Just a look. And he likens that to what it means to believe in him and find salvation. It's amazing. He's asked to believe in a moment. You may remember, and then John 3, 16, of course, following, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in a moment, perhaps you remember that moment in your life when you first heard and you first believed. And perhaps you've had quite a journey since then, but your salvation is sure. There's an amazing story about Spurgeon in 1850. When he was 15 years old, he was walking up Hythe Hill in Colchester. He's, if you don't know him, one of the most famous preachers in in English church history. And because there was a snow blizzard, he had to turn aside. He came into this little Methodist chapel. There was about 15 people. And because of the snow, the usual minister wasn't there. So one of the deacons or someone got up probably had a trade like a tailor or something and he got up he wasn't the best speaker but he got up by faith and he began to speak and the text that day was isaiah 45:22 look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth spurgeon said he didn't even pronounce his words well but that did not matter for there was a glimpse of hope for me in the text Spurgeon said he started like this. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a great deal of effort. It is not by lifting your foot or your finger. It is just a look. Well, a man need not to go to college to learn how to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand years to look. Anyone, I, anyone can look. Even a child can look. This is what the text says, he continued. Look unto me. I, said he, many of you are looking to yourselves. There is no use looking there. You never find comfort in yourselves. But the Lord says, look unto me on the cross in my death and burial and resurrection and in my ascension at the Father's right hand. Look, and in this moment you shall be saved. Wow. So Jesus uses this situation to teach and show the need for repentance that every man must die whether that is of old age or in this sinch, a tower falling on me or some unexpected tragedy, every man must die and then it doesn't matter if he is a righteous Pharisee or the worst of the sinners of the Galileans he must stand before God verse 6 This is why he speaks this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in the vineyard. Now, this parable of a barren fig tree not bearing fruit. It's not to be confused with when Jesus cursed the fig tree or the parable of the fig tree in Matthew 24, but he uses the fig tree, and it's commonly used to refer to Israel as a nation not bearing fruit when when Jesus came as the Messiah. So he says a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. So it's a fig tree, but it's planted in a vineyard, and he came looking for fruit, and he found none. This is another teaching to show the need for repentance. That's why it's in this context. And he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit perhaps an allusion to Jesus' public ministry. I've been seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down, for why does it use up the ground? And he answered and said, Sir, leave it alone until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit well, then well, but if not, after you can cut it down. And in this parable, there is a warning. What is it saying? that God is long-suffering, right? He has waited years. He is coming back and looking, no fruit. And he goes away, he comes back again, no fruit. He comes back again, no fruit. He's long-suffering, and he says, I'm even going to wait again. But in the parable, there is a warning that the day of salvation is today. The time of repentance is this moment. And don't wait and don't put it off. Turn, believe, repent, and bear the fruit of repentance. This reminds me of the parable that Isaiah uses in Isaiah chapter 5, again regarding Israel, but certainly applies to all of us in terms of repentance and faith. God is looking for fruit. I'll read it to you in Isaiah 5. It says, let me sing to you, my well-beloved, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and he cleared out the stones and he planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the midst and made a wine press. And so he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. Listen to this. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And I think this question can be echoed for us. What more could God have done that he became a man, that he went to the cross, that he paid for our sin, that he gave us the inspired word, he gave us prophecies and preachers and messengers and the church and the Holy Spirit. What more could he have done than he has done? He has finished the work. He has made the gospel clear and lays it at the feet of men. He calls for repentance. Now, repentance is one of those words that's thrown around and misused or even abused often in Christian circles. It's it's used to lay a trip on people's lives. They make repentance a work that you do that merits salvation, but that's not repentance. Repentance is not a work that we do for God. Repentance is a is a turn. It is in my heart. I believe. I respond. I look to him in my bankruptcy. And I I say, God, I cannot produce fruit. I cannot produce fruit, but you, John 15, it says, abide in, Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. And if you abide in me, you will not produce fruit, but you will bear fruit. And that's what the Christian life is about. God is not asking us of something that we cannot do. He's asking us of something that he will do through us yielding and believing and looking to him and the beautiful boasting of the gospel is how he salvages and changes a a, a person's life. This is illustrated in the next event in this passage and we'll close with this. As he was teaching in the synagogues, behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of affirmity 18 years, and she was bent over, listen to these words, and in no way could lift herself up. When we read that, I think, I wonder if this is here in this inspired account for a reason, after he's speaking about the need for repentance, the fruits of repentance, and then this story about a woman who had been suffering for 18 years and she could not lift herself up. He shows that it's his power that can bring change in a person's life. Amen. Dr. Luke, of course, notes how long she had been suffering. Think of that for a moment, 18 years of suffering. Think of... Those words, she could in no way raise herself up. She would want to. She would want to lift her eyes from the dust to the heavens. She would want to walk and live normally, but she could not. It speaks to my heart of the bankruptcy and the hopelessness of man if we are left to our own efforts, our own works, our own vain religious works and moral achievements cannot merit anything from God. We are completely at the mercy of his mercy and grace. So, verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her to him. Notice that. This was an opportunity of faith. He called her to him. And he said, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And when he laid his hands on her, immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Oh, the the boasting of the gospel, there it is again, that this woman was made straight. That this man was an alcoholic, oh, but he was made straight, that this person had a terrible anger in his life and he was made straight, that this person lived this way and he was made straight, the transforming power of the gospel and of grace and the Holy Spirit in someone's life, that there is no one too far, too lost, too sinful, that grace wouldn't embrace them and save them and change them. The soul of Tarsus and the Apostle Paul, what a pattern, what an incredible example of the power of grace that we could consider that someone was grumpy and negative and moody and critical and all grace changes them. Makes us something so different. And she saw this very clearly because it says in verse 14, verse, where is it? Yeah, and she glorified God, there it is. We give him the glory. Verse 14, but look at this response. The ruler of the synagogue said with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath and he said to the crowd, there are six days which men ought to work, therefore come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. I think he was missing the point just a little bit that over the years the rabbis had added all of these surplus commands trying to define what work is, or you cannot do work on the Sabbath, and they defined this is work and this is work, and that healing was work. and You shouldn't even be healed on the Sabbath. She was rebuked also. And the Lord answered him and said, hypocrite, hypocrite. He first addressed the man who was pretending to be something that he was, the pious ruler of the synagogue. Oh, we shouldn't work. And Jesus looks at him and says, hypocrite. And we can live a certain way before men, but God sees. And notice what he says. Does not each one of you, he says to the crowd on the Sabbath, loose his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? You, You don't keep the Sabbath anyway. So why are you being a judge? I love that. Verse uh, 16. He says, Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond? And he likens that to them loosening the bond of their ox. How much more shouldn't the bonds of this woman be loosed on the Sabbath? His words were very revealing and insightful and searching. And when he said these things to his adversaries, they were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Because we see in that story of physical healing the same principle regarding salvation and a transformed life that Christianity is in no way a work that we do for God, but it is a work that God has done and is doing in us, and we have nothing to boast of in our salvation or in our transformation, but as this woman did, we glorify God. He came not to destroy, but to save. He came not to condemn, but to forgive. He came not to burden, but to set free. And we have been saved and forgiven and set free. And we heard, we turned, we repented and we believed. And as it says here, let us rejoice for all the glorious things that he has done. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time in the word that we can come and just expose our hearts to the truth, to the gospel, that we can bring our hearts before you and all help us, Lord, find humility again and again, not to look to you with, with any, any uh, pride or resistance, all but to bow in our hearts to you and say, God, you are God, and I am not. You are God and you know all things. You are all powerful. You are everywhere present. You are eternal and here I am with my limited view and understanding all, oh, but I bow to you in faith. And there are, I may not know the answers to all questions, but oh Lord, we know you and we trust you and we bow to you. We know that you are just, that you are fair, that you are loving. You sent your son not to destroy men's lives, but to save. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for blessed assurance for those who have put their faith and trust in you alone. And even in this moment, perhaps there is one here or listening online, and you are not sure of your salvation, or this is why he came. He is the Savior, and he came to save. Put your faith in him, today even, and say, Jesus, please save me by your grace. I know I am not worthy. I am not righteous in myself, but I am a sinner. I pray that you would forgive me and give me the gift of salvation and lead me, change me, guide me, do a work in my life for your glory. In Jesus' name, bless these words to our hearts and lives. Amen.